Hello, everybody. Chris Martinson here. And today we're going to be talking about finance and economics as part of Finance U. Remember, anything that you see in this video and all resources available at our websites or affiliated websites are not intended as or construed as financial advice. This is for educational purposes. Remember, if you have a financial decision, please consult a financial professional. We are not attorneys. We're not CPAs. We are not financial managers. As well, we do our best to be accurate and everything we represent is as accurate as we know it to be. Now, let's turn to our program. Hello, everyone, and uh, very pleased to be back here with Paul Kiker of Kiker Wealth Management. Paul, good to see you, and uh, uh, glad to see you've gotten over your your cold, yes. <laughs> more or less. Good to see you too, Chris. I've got a little bit of a itch left over, but I'm back to full energy again, which is really nice. All right, well, well just go ahead and and cough whenever you need to. Um, so a lot has happened uh, since last week, you know, uh, and um, I don't know if you saw, but I put out a piece recently that basically said, listen, I don't know exactly what's happening, but I do know for a fact that central banks have preferred buyer programs at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which is where the highly leveraged derivative products such as futures options, things like that are traded. And I just asked the open-ended question, which is like, can anybody give me a compelling reason or any reason or any legitimate reason why a foreign central bank would get a preferred buyer discount trading natural gas contracts in the U.S., uh, full-sized agricultural contracts of any kind, silver, things like that, equities. Now, we know the Bank of Japan is busy monkeying around in their equity markets to the point that in many cases they are the market like they they own yes. majority positions like the bank of japan ought to be sitting on the boards of a lot of japanese companies <laughs> by shareholder rights laws at this point in time but but so so we've seen uh at the time of the taping of this over just the past month or so this rip roaring rally magically out of nowhere shortly after the uh middle east uh you know uh, turbulence started stocks and bonds just ripping higher I, I, I don't just mean ripping higher let me just share this real quick um let's go ahead and do this this is the german dax dax this is the german stock market you can see this big green thing that you could draw a straight line on here Woo! that is a ripping rally and by the way it was fading and in real danger here for good reason because the german economy is tanking Yes. They're losing their most productive in industries, right? Energy intensive industries, steel, glass, cement, all leaving for good reason, right? Yes. So, and this isn't just a rip and rally here. Let me pull this out to a monthly view because this is just a, um, uh, this is a daily view. But that takes us from the, say, October 30th through to current, which is December, what do we got today? 7th. Mm -hmm. um, now let's go on a monthly. That, Paul, is a brand new all-time high for German yes. stocks against a backdrop of deindustrialization, economic weakening, and all kinds of other factors. How, how do you begin to make sense of that? That doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I've never known any investors, any textbook on investing that says, hey, you know, buy with absolute panic and and as much leverage as you can get because that what that's what it takes to push markets to that level of high when economic numbers are deteriorating. It you know it's one thing when you reach a bottom, right? You have a panic sellout. You know, market bottoms tend to be an event. That was not an event back in November. That was sparked by you know what, what seems to be this like you've been pointing out this global um synchronized rally that takes place and for whatever reason it's driven the dax to new highs and that that just doesn't make sense it's like an upside down world yeah let's um let's look at this in the context of uh that global synchronized thing again so i'm going to have to move this over just a tiny bit but this is all the markets here so the Dow Jones, S&P 500, NASDAQ, um, the DAX here, you can see they all have this sort of same sort of brontosaurus formation. The Nikkei uh, participated, but it started to weaken a bit here. Mm -hmm. Euro stocks, almost identical there. No, no surprise, Euro stocks 50 and the DAX, uh, similar markets. But they've come in the context, Paul, of something very interesting, which is this is the VIX, the Volatility Index, the VIX. Mm -hmm which nominally is supposed to track volatility, but it it doesn't really. 
um, because yeah. volatility can go both ways, right? You could be volatile higher, volatile lower. Volatility is just a deviation from current, right? It's it's how how much are we moving? Are we moving six percent a move, or are we moving 0.6 percent a move? But right. in in truth, what the VIX measures now is that when it goes down, stocks go up, and mm -hmm. when it goes up, stocks go down. So it's sort of an inverse stock market. This got so crushed, so crushed. The VIX is so crushed, Paul, that buying um, in options, which are which have a are priced off of that volatility. If you wanted to buy a put on the S and P last week, it was the cheapest mm -hmm. it's ever been, ever, ever <laughs> in my entire ever. lifetime, ever. <laughs> you could buy protection, like 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 investors are so certain after that rip <laughs> rip roaring rally, they're so certain, Paul, that they're saying the stock market has never been safer. It'll, it's never been less likely to go down in anybody's lifetime. <laughs> right, right, which just doesn't make sense with what's taking place. You've still got conflict taking place in the Middle East. You've still got conflict in Ukraine. But it boils down to the elephant in the room, it seems. The speculation is, is we missed on the CPI numbers that started the move in November. Then you have massive amount of corporate buybacks. And the belief is, is that the Federal Reserve is going to, I mean, really the only bullish argument that I can come back to and looking at all the numbers is the fact that, yes, we have some disinflation here in the short run. We, you know, inflation is cooling off a little bit, but you have to assume that, that if we do have some deflation, that it's not going to impact corporate profits and the earnings are going to hold up. And, and you, but it boils down to the fact that there's the belief and rightfully so the federal reserve and the central banks of the world have convinced investors since the crisis in 2008, that they have a hand heavy enough to cause us to have a Goldilocks scenario, no matter what. So, you know, I, I don't understand the severe level of betting that the federal reserve's infallible and, and they're not going to have any missteps going forward. But that seems to be well, the the yeah. only argument that I can discover that causes the market to panic buy like this. You know, we've all been in that store. You walk in, there's a sign that says you break it, you buy it. <laughs> you know, I think the central banks have broken the markets. Me I don't too. think they are efficient distributors of capital. I don't believe that they are future discounting machines. Like I taught when I went to business school. You know, we had to take efficient market hypothesis. You go run through all the numbers, right? And they tell you, you know, that basically that, that you know, like it or hate it, whatever you want. But capital markets are efficient discounting machines, meaning millions of individual people have a collective intelligence that's beyond any one person's intelligence. You got to respect that, you know? Mm -hmm. That's true. But I don't think we're there anymore. I think we're in some other some other landscape where you know they pro probably for the best of intentions the central bank started to intervene a little and then a little more and then a little mm -hmm. more and then one day you wake up and you discover that the japanese bank of central bank is the bond market and to a large measure is the stock market now mm -hmm. um you know so it's just a different landscape which i think necessitates a different approach mm -hmm. to figuring out how you're going to participate because that is the game what do they say you know hate the game not the player or whatever the Right, you know, <laughs> hate the game, not the player, and play by the rules. You got to play the cards you're dealt, especially mm -hmm. when you're not in a position to change the deck. So, <clears throat> um, but what's interesting to me is you've got the VIX. You know, these these seems to be mechanisms that these hedge funds, CTA hedge funds, which are basically futures traders, uh, not the commodity trading uh, version of that, that are big momentum buyers and everybody is basically following those. I do pay attention when we're looking to allocate capital, what the, whether they're going to, whether it's more likely they're going to be massive buyers or they're going to be massive sellers. So then you've got these products coming out that allow you to bet against the VIX. I mean, the reality is you still have a massive number of unrealized losses on the banking system. You've got some liquidities continuing to, to drain from the system uh, I don't know where the source is, but there's approximately $7 trillion of government securities that has to be refinanced in the next 12 months. But yet you've got the VIX, which we're told the market is a forward-looking six months from now where things are, that is basically predict predicting there is no risk on the horizon whatsoever. No risk on the horizon. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I, I don't understand that. That's what it's pricing in. Thank goodness we're not just stubbornly betting against that at this point, 
but it does make sense to position your portfolios when you have all-time lows and in, in the cost of insuring your portfolio to to at least put some hedges on there and and have you know have your exit points ready because if if the VIX is wrong and the market's wrong and the Fed and let's say the Fed comes in starts cutting interest rates we've got a very high chance that inflation is going to surge back again which is going to cause all kinds of problems in corporate profits so you know, there's a lot of plates spinning that everybody's expecting are going to spin perfectly for the next 12 to 24 months, much less with the election coming up. And we all know that's going to be, you know, chaotic. My assumption would be that's going to be chaotic between now and who we discover who the candidates are. Oh, I agree. It's already chaotic because people are starting to ask questions that really ought to have been asked around the context of the prior election. So I'll just leave that there. But but let me let me you brought up something really important I do want to talk about because I haven't had a chance to talk about that yet with with my folks back at Peak Prosperity, which is whoops, I'm sorry, went the wrong direction there. Come on. Uh, I don't know why it, it decided it had to do that. Excuse me one second, folks. Um, it is just so hard to get these. Sorry, I'm going to have to stop sharing because the, the share thing covered up my controls. So let me, <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't back out of that stupid ad. Uh, so let me start all over again. Um, so this is really interesting. This was a Bloomberg article. It came out November 30th and it's about oil's wild ride. And they're talking about disruptive band of bot traders. Uh, mm -hmm. These are those CTAs you just mentioned. Yes. Um, and, and so commodity trading advisors, I guess they call it, but you can see your oil has just been like getting crushed. We're under 70. So the future volatility that comes into this for me, Paul, is that um, I, I, people in the oil business, this takes a lot of projects and makes them non-viable. So they right. don't, guess what? They don't get invested and we don't get future supply. People are slowly waking up to the idea that, yeah, we kind of do need fossil fuels. We kind of do need oil and gas. The whole green energy thing's falling apart. Right. It's as an unreliable, expensive, not as advertised kind of a thing. Um, but this is really interesting. Just these they say here, CTAs have emerged as a powerful force in the oil market. Just one fifth of managed money participants in U.S. oil, they make up 60 percent of net trading volume. So they are what they're 20 percent of the actual money that's at play in oil. And by the way, there's too much money at play in oil. I think it ought to be more consumers and producers doing you know the legit thing which is figuring out what price is right instead Agreed. we have all these speculators but but they're 60 percent of the net trading volume is by these ctas um and this is according to td bank and jp morgan right you mm -hmm. would be absolutely shocked how large their p positions are they say mm -hmm. here it is shocking and so uh you know the argument that we have to suffer through is they go uh they um, they go, this is the keepers of the system. They say, oh, but liquidity is good. You know, they might drive a little too far one way or the other, but on balance, having that liquidity in there is good. There is a third of a trillion dollars in the CTAs in the oil side mm -hmm. doing what they're doing. And they don't actually care about yeah. whether we have enough or what the future looks like. What they care about is this minute, this hour today, mm -hmm. is it going this way or that way? And they're just just piling on and driving that trend. Uh, this is going to be trouble. It it will be, and they're distorting signals instead of allowing the market to to have its normal equilibrium. They're pushing it beyond you know that pendulum one way or another. And like you said, that's less investment that goes back into the future production for oil and energy. So that does mean that let's say we do get the Goldilocks scenario on the other side of this, you've got supply that's not going to be able to keep up with the demand that, that comes through. So then that's going to be another hamper on the viability of the growth and profitability of corporations and inflationary pressures that are going to go down to the average individual. <clears throat> um, so, you know, it's amazing that things have held up this well for this long. And I think it has surprised everyone, but I think there's also a lot of recession talk fatigue that investors are just like, look, hey, I'm batting down the hatches, you know, unless I have a strategy that allows me to push a few cards on the table, pull a few cards off the table to try to navigate it in a risk managed manner, but also still participate, you know, there, you know, recession fatigue is setting in, you've got these massive moves that are taking place in the market and 
And I believe that market participants are, are being worn down to the point that's like, okay, let's just, let's just allocate this. Maybe they're going to save the day. And that complacency is usually where things become the most dangerous, the most dangerous or the hardest. So, you know, this rally may carry steam into the end of the year. Um, you know, I think the interest rate pullback, the interest rate sell-off has, has uh, uh, reached a little bit of an extreme here in the short run. I think we've got to, we're going to have at least between now and the end of the year, a little higher pressure on interest rates going up, especially with Bank of Japan coming out and, and starting to talk that interest rates are going to come up, which usually puts pressure on interest rates higher in the United States. So this narrative is not baked into the cake yet markets anticipating mm -hmm. it but i'm really curious to see what's going to happen after the first of the year well yeah um so again you break it you buy it i'm convinced that what one of the things that the fed has broken and you mentioned it is this idea of complacency uh mm -hmm. people are really complacent like, like to the extent people are like you know and i don't think they're wrong uh necessarily to say you know I better get in quick because we, you know, we saw these bottoms. You mentioned the bottoming process. A bottom is where you run out of sellers and it's usually a process. And I'm old enough to remember when bottoms took some time to iron out, you know, the bottom we had in March of 2020, when the fed decided to flood the world with liquidity was about an hour long. Yeah, right? It was, <laughs> it was, it was a, a needle bottom. Things were going this way and then they were going that way. It wasn't like this, you know, sort things out and figure it just, Boom, went the other direction. And that was in part because of how much liquidity, money, cash, whatever you call it, that the Fed dumped in, but also because people were expecting that. Mm -hmm. And so now we're all expecting, we live in bailout nation, like, oh, it's just going to bail out. Now, the only thing the Federal Reserve has reliably done, the one chart that I think they can claim victory on is that every time they do that, the gap between the 0.1% and everybody else gets a whole lot wider. Yes. <laughs> that they've just done. You know, victory laps, the 0.1% has just made out like bandits uh, every step of the way. And that's really all the Federal Reserve can claim credit credit for. And they've impoverished vast swaths, generations. Yes. You name it, right? Not, not, they, not, not, not beneficial. The closer you are to the money printers and, and the power center, the better off you are. And they've decimated the middle class uh, since the 2008 crisis. It really goes back before that with their monetary policy, but they have absolutely decimated the middle class. And, yep. uh, um, and it's frustrating, but nobody's really, everybody can see. And what amazes me, your audience is, is very well educated. You do such a great job of informing people. They're looking at the world with eyes wide open and, and courageous. But I've also been in this North Georgia community for the past 25 years. So you deal with the average individual that either has no desire to, to look at the world with courage because they want, they want to continue the life that they have right now, or that, you know, they're just not aware enough, but it's interesting to me. I'm having a lot of conversations with the average individual that's coming in and just, you know, saying, look, I, I, I nothing I see adds up you know, something has to break where we're going is unsustainable. So, you know, my question is, are we reaching that tipping point now where you're educating those that you're educating are educating and people are really starting to wake up. They don't know what to do yet, but they're starting to recognize the problems that are out there. So I'm hoping that we're at that tipping point that we can, you know, change. Um, the question is, how's that change going to come about? Yeah, well, it's by that tipping point is common knowledge, right? We have to we have to all be able to publicly say what we privately believe to be true. So I was mm -hmm. just interviewed yesterday by Ken McElroy and his lovely wife, Daniil. And and what came up in the context of that was interesting because Daniil is both a creature of habit. And a a a relentless um, uh, receipt keeper and budgeter, right? And so mm -hmm. the creature of habit in her always goes to, you know, the same grocery stores, buys the same things, has has a precise basket of things that she likes to eat, has got worked that out years ago, and she keeps track of it. So when we were discussing the CPI, I said, well, officially food's up like, you know, 9% over the last two years. And she said 52%, right? It had a number. Yep. 52. In her budget, now, it was 52. Yeah. So, so it was just North of 50. She said, so I'm going with 52, but, but it was over 50, just over 50%. So, um, is what she said. And, um, 
And so again, the CPI, as it's fictitiously hand buffed by the, the government statisticians, is not a cost of living index, which is what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. They do it so it's a cost of survival index because what Daniil was supposed to have done was say, wow, these things I like to buy are too expensive. Let me buy the store brand. Let me switch out. Let me not buy sprouts anymore. I'll buy canned peas because they're cheaper, right? So what we're actually tracking is a survival index. What does it cost to just survive, right? But if you want to eat and eat well, that's up by 50%. So people are forced to eat poorly. And that means that has a different cost because there's nothing so expensive as eating cheaply over the time, right? When you look at how you know the metabolic disorders and right. how sick the United States average citizen is. So the BLS you know, and, and the BEA and all the other government statisticians, they're just busy lying to us all and we're tired of it. And I'm excited to hear that to whatever extent we can be excited by this stuff, that, that the average person is finally going enough is enough. Yes. I'm tired of this. And we can openly talk about, oh, those government stati- statisticians, they are mm-hmm. liars. They're mm-hmm. gaslighting liars. And they ought to be ashamed and they should not sleep well at night because they should be ashamed of doing their jobs that poorly. Um, they should how be. I see it. They should be. And I thought it was interesting in your interview with Ed Dowd that he he was not on Twitter over Thanksgiving, but also picked up some extra uh, followers. And I thought that was pretty fascinating because um, I think there's a lot to the conversations around the Thanksgiving table to where people are or or start they can't deny the data and, and what they're seeing around them. They, you know, they they haven't wanted to embrace the courage. But not only are they seeing it with the the uh, interventions, as you called it, but I think they're also seeing it economically and having conversations. So, you know, I know from my wife doesn't keep a, a spreadsheet necessarily, but, you know, I've noticed that a lot of our brands have changed over the past six to, to nine months. And and this is a compliment to my wife, but I always tease her and say they, in, they invented copper wire by pulling a penny out of her hand. So <laughs> she's actually changed grocery stores and maneuvered around and they're all talking about it. Um, and that's been able to reduce some of our, our outlay, but we, we try to focus very heavily on eating good, high quality food. And, um, and, and it's certainly impactful. Yeah. 50, 50%. That's the real numbers. And that, you know, I didn't realize that Chris, that, that this is a survival index. So, so when they're running the inflation numbers, if I understand you correctly, this has nothing to do with the cost of living to maintain your lifestyle. This is, this is the assumption that you're going to cut back and you're going to go to basic survival, purchase the cheapest things that you can. And that's what they're basing those numbers off of. I, I actually did not understand that. That's, that's, that's absolutely horrific. Yeah. So, so if uh, they'll, they'll keep a basket of things and they'll consider it sort of equivalent, they call it the substitution basket. So if steak is up, they figure you just substitute for uh, pork and if pork is up, they'll assume you substitute for chicken. So their assumption is that you're always just defaulting to the lowest, the thing that went up the least. Right. So mm. that's one of their tricks. Right. And mm. that's just, that's just not, not how it is. Right. You know, and they, they will substitute crazy stuff, you know, fresh vegetables for canned vegetables is just like they're not equivalent you know it's it's just dumb it's just a, it's a game they play so when i interviewed ed butowski of the chapwood index a while back remember he said that yes. real inflation is at least two but as many as four or five times higher than officially stated depending on where you live right right so and of course obviously you can't create a rate of inflation for the united states that's the broken conceit to start this whole thing out right because an elderly person on a fixed income in a non-rent control department in San Francisco who has a lot of Medicare, uh, you know, medical exposure is experiencing a very different phenomenon than somebody living in rural Alabama in a trailer, right? They're, just, they're not having the same experience at all, right? Right. right. So, so that's the first thing. But um, obviously, you know, as well, they undercount stuff. They don't, they don't, they don't include insurance, really, you know? They don't include tax property taxes. Uh, everybody I talked to says their property taxes were up strongly last year. Not, not a little, but a lot. Substantially. A lot of the retirees that I've worked with for a long time <clears throat> are having to take extra distributions out of their account because of the fact that 
you know, their regular income has been, been, they haven't had any savings in the regular income because of the increased cost of inflation. And then they've had increases in property insurance uh, and taxes has been the one thing that they've complained about the most from a property tax standpoint uh, up substantially. I don't have percentages, but my, based on my personal, they're up over 20% in the past 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. My, mine were up 14%, I believe. So uh, mm. and, and, and I live in a prop two and a half state. They can't raise the rate. So what they do is they have this other thing where the, the state has um, assessors. So it's not the town. Can't get mad at the town assessor out of her hands. So the state assessors come in with their clipboards and their ties and their little government cars. And then they assess everything way up here, you know? And uh, so the rate technically didn't move. It's just, it's just all, it's, it's like, and, and, but uh, you know, with, with that said, I will tell you, it's not, my town ain't rolling in it. Like we, like we have bad finances. And so I get it. So we're all getting squeezed. And the squeezers are squeezing the squeezed and, and it's just, you're wondering when does this break, you know, what, what do you do? And, and, uh, and that's, that's a really interesting phenomenon right now. I don't have good answers for any of it, to be honest. No, Except stop printing money, you knuckleheads. <laughs> no, you know? stop printing, stop printing money. That's, that's, that's the problem. The artificial, we're not a capitalistic society at all. We don't have capitalistic markets. It's a central plan market. And I don't think people really fully understand that yet. You know, it's, I've worked with a lot of business owners that have built a business up from the ground. Those business owners see their employees as teammates that participate in the growth. Now, yeah, the business owner is going to uh, participate more because their head's on the chopping block. They're one that carries the majority of the risk. They're typically the one that's working 90 hours a week. Not saying that there's not employees or members of the team, but they they spread the wealth a lot greater then, you know, and I hate to say it this way, but a trust fund baby that graduates from a major Ivy League school that through their connections comes in and starts running the company. And the only thing that they know is not building that business and the teamwork that goes into building that business. It's bean counting and let's, let's maximize our profitability so that I can try to buy a bigger yacht than the person next to me. Your, your capitalistic individual typically doesn't operate that way. And then you've got these individuals who end up in power with at the central bank and others that are, hey, let's just bail everything out so we can all stay in power. And that's to the detriment of the middle class. The average investor um, it herds everybody into one style of investing because, quite frankly, it takes a lot of fortitude and a lot of adaptation and letting go of your ego to be able to run a risk-managed portfolio when the central bank is is constantly bailing out, Right. You can do it. It just takes a whole lot more work and and people get exhausted of carrying that pace, except for the few of us that are out there that continue to fight this fight because we know that it's not going to end well and we want to make a difference in the lives of, of, of the few that are that are not accepting and, and excited about what's taking place. Yeah, very well said. Thank you for, for doing what you do because... Um... And this is something I, I put in the original crash course back in 08, which was in the context of inflation, right? Because most people don't know this, Paul, but we had a 250-year chunk of time when we didn't have inflation in the country. Like none. Yes. I mean, we had little blips because there were wars, and of course, you print for a war, but but prices were, would return back to baseline, meaning that if you took mm. the money at the time, which was gold and silver, and you put it in a coffee can, if they had such things back then, and you buried it. 150 years later, you know, your great, great grandchildren could build, dig that up and have exactly the same purchasing power that you put in the ground. Now, that's what money is supposed to do, because it's supposed to have three things it does, one of which is store of value. Mm -hmm. They have specifically told us, and I, I, I hate that they never answer this question, like Jerome Powell, we, we're, we're more comfortable with 2% inflation. <laughs> why? Why? Why any? Why not zero? Right. Why isn't zero the target? Right. Well, that's because right. the banking system and, you know, all their debt models like this, it has nothing to do with what's good for you or no. me or the country or the average person or the middle class, which is real, the true source of prosperity. This is what's good for the bankers. Mm -hmm. They like inflation. They got yeah. reasons and I can explain that. But for you and I, it's not a great thing. So when the Fed says we want two percent inflation, what they're saying is you go ahead and bury your coffee can equivalent today. And we're yeah. going to steal half of that over 35 years. 
Yes. That's a tax. Half of everything you develop belongs to us. Mm-hmm. If it's 3%, well, now that's like 22 years. Mm-hmm. If it's closer to what Ed Bentowski says and it's 7%, that means every 10 years, the Federal Reserve steals half of everything you work for and saved yes. up. Yes. Half. It's a 50% tax over 10 years. And that forces you to have to play their game. Wander with us over to Wall Street. You have to put your money to work because otherwise you're going to lose. You bury your coffee can. It's a guaranteed loss. No mm-hmm. bueno. So you have to play this game. Is that mm-hmm. a fair game? No. Well, no, I can show you the chart of the 0.1% and tell you that's not a fair game. <laughs> so, so I think that's what we got to get up and out is this idea that to be a social creature, you want fairness and reciprocity. We're going to do good things with each other. We're going to donate our time, our effort, all of that to build a better community. And it's, but it's got to be fair. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and the problem with that consistent inflation from that standpoint, and, and, and another reason the middle class has been uh, eradicated, uh, nearly completely decimated, is because of the fact that if you make one mistake, you make one wrong step, then you get knocked back five or six years, 10 years in your financial picture. And then you're, you're not only are you behind, but you've also lost to due to inflation. So, so it's harder and harder to catch up. Right. So, you know, it adds pressure to the average individual because the margin of error, instead of being normal is much thinner. So one wrong step, and then you've completely changed your financial future going forward. And that's what concerns me about the Federal Reserve hurting everyone in and being, you know, oh my gosh, the Fed's going to save the day. You know, the only bullish argument that I can come back to, and that's what everybody talks about, central banks are going to cut, they're going to print, they're going to save us like they did in the middle of the pandemic, they're going to save us like they did in 2019, they're going to save us like they did in 2016, they're going to save us like they did when they started quantitative easing and Operation Twist, I think it was in 2013, they go mm-hmm. back to 2018 and, hey, they're going to save us. Well, they're not infallible. They've manipulated nearly everything that they can possibly manipulate. I'm sure they'll find more things to manipulate, but there is a point of diminishing returns. <clears throat> and you have individuals who have become complacent. They don't know what to do. There's fewer individuals that are managing risk-managed portfolios for them to even find to try to help them navigate through the inevitable calamity when this comes apart. And then when it does come apart, nobody knows what to do. And there's very few people out there that even have the knowledge to try to help them navigate it. And you just have absolute mass pain and chaos. You know, it goes back to first by inflation, then by deflation, they'll rob you of all your wealth. So um, we're in a, we're in a very dangerous and precarious situation. And I think, the average person is starting to see it. They can't explain it because they've not run across someone like you or your audience that can communicate this clearly with numbers in a loving, calm manner. Um, but but hopefully you're going to continue to increase that audience and meet others and con- you know your, your audience will continue to refer to you so that more people can be prepared for what's coming because pain's coming. We just don't know whether it starts two months from now or 24 months from now. Fiscal stimulus may do a good job of trying to keep the markets up into the election, but it gets a lot more dicey after that. Well, thank you for that description of of loving and calm, um, but that's only because you weren't at, at the coffee table with me and Evie this morning. She has to bear the brunt of me getting to a position of calm lovingness because, because oh my goodness, it, it's hard to take sometimes, um, you know, but it, it's just, I, cause I'm a Virgo. You know, I don't do a lot of astrology, but if you read about Virgos, we care about fairness and justice and stuff like that. It's just just unfair. It's unfair. But I know, Paul, in my heart of hearts, that an unfair society, an unjust society is one that is um, is destined to fail at some point in time. And those injustices are just getting bigger and bigger and people feel that. And and so I'd rather not go down that path if we don't have to, because Mm -hmm. I don't think we have the time or the resources as a nation to be squandering them, breaking stuff before we figure out mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't do that. Um, right. Things things are getting tight, you know? Right. So, And the global order is changing, and I'll come back to this. I'm a Virgo too, so is that the reason why I'm so frustrated about it? <laughs> <laughs> we have the same curse, right? Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, um, so, but, you know, there, uh, 
we forget sometimes because there's so much attention on the central bank that the global, all of this globalization that we had taking place over the past 25, 30 years is starting to fracture and we have deglobalization that's taking place now. I mean, there's a massive number of investment in manufacturing capability in the United States, which is great from a long-term standpoint, but that is also not as cost effective. It's not as cheap to produce in the United States as it is globally. So as our currency comes down and other currencies come up over time, you've got this equalization of the nations. That's tremendous inflationary pressures going forward. Plus, you know, you've got the global order that's, you know, you've got Bank of Japan, for example, if they leave their negative interest rate policy, that changes a lot of the investment strategy that some individuals on Wall Street have been operating under for the past 20 or 30 years. So we, we, are, we are leaving the old order and into the new order. And for those that are, are aware and are open-minded enough to consider the different paths and adaptive enough to be able to participate in it, they're going to better themselves and put themselves and their families in a position to weather the storm much better than others. And hopefully, like we've said before, be able to step into those reins of power and and bring wisdom and integrity and and um, capitalism back into the forefront of the system. Yeah, exactly. And I was just up. Uh, you reminded me. I pulled up this article, but um, I, I don't have my uh, subscription on this one. But but it was it was a surprise article by Bloomberg just a few days ago where they said, "Oh, remember this whole thing where China was going to be hamstrung because they weren't going to be able to build chips." Um, yes. You know, they just copy and that's all they can do. So we're going to hold the the three nanometer technology or two or whatever it was. Uh, so the Bloomberg article was like, oh, the latest Huawei phones just shipped and they have cutting edge chips in them that they built themselves. Right. So this whole idea that that, you know, that China needs us is, you know, more than we need them, that they need an export market. It's like, no, what they get from us is they get dollars that's it that's what they get and those dollars have utility but this is the other big thing people need to be aware of this is a great moment of shifting where the dollar is no longer revered it's been revered because it was stable it was revered because you could at least trust that the capital markets were a rough were much safer i would much rather have my money in a new york capital market than say a guatemalan however we just showed we the united states just showed that we were willing to weaponize the dollar based on all sorts yes. of political things, right? That was no bueno. Um, and there are a lot of other, we used it as a club, you know, more than we used it as a, as a carrot uh, in many cases, okay? So it, these erosions happened, and then all of a sudden, you get the BRICS people coming along saying, ah, we're tired of that, right? And and, right. and so I just did an interview with uh, Lynn Alden, who said that, um, you know, probably not likely that the BRICS come up with a currency because that has certain things you have to manage, but they're doing these bilateral deals. So China and Brazil say, yuan for, for reals, right? Let's trade. Um, Saudi Arabia, bilateral. So we're watching this happen. And and so that's go ongoing really, really fast. But people in Washington, D.C. are acting as if that's never going to change. King dollars here forever. They can be as abusive with it as they want, you know. Yeah. But the whispers, the whispers are starting. And with China now developing their own cutting edge chips, I don't even know when that happened, but apparently it just happened, right? I didn't know that either. I had heard rumors, but I didn't realize that it was already implemented. Yep. So they're fairly they're fairly sophisticated, those Chinese, you know. They they mm -hmm. got this all worked out, you know. Uh so this idea that that you know they need us, not sure about that. I, I don't I don't <laughs> think that's I don't think that's accurate. Right. Well, right you know, when you talk about the weaponization of the U.S. dollar, it makes me think we all know the person that we don't like, but we respect and trust. Right. Like we mm -hmm. might not like somebody's personality, but they are somebody that you can rely on to be trustworthy and and that you respect them. They're going to tell you something that you don't necessarily want to hear uh, unsolicited. And it may be true. So you respect them, but you don't necessarily like that. You know, until we weaponized the dollar, I think we had that relationship within within the global uh, system. So what I wrote down on my uh, kind of daily note was when the weaponization of the U.S. dollar against Russia and what is it now? The new speaker is talking about seizing the assets uh, that we have from Iran and taking those away. You know, the pain of changing for the rest of the world now is a lot easier than the pain and risk of staying the same because of the arrogance of the U S leaders 
and their willingness to to just ignore the rule of law, which has been the one thing that caused us to be respected and and trusted, not necessarily liked. And that has changed out of the arrogance of of our Washington leaders. You know, pride comes before the fall. And I've never seen so much pride as we have in in, in our leaders at this given time. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a it's a big shift ongoing. Um I forget who said it, but uh, it might have been Warren Buffett. It might have been Ray Dalio. But somebody, some one of the big financial types said, um, there comes a day when United States citizens wake up and discover they didn't hit a triple. They were born on third base. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. Meaning, you know, we've had a lot of advantages and you just sort of begin to take the advantages for granted. But then when the advantages go away, uh, that's when you sort of find out where you're really at. Um Good news. That means we get to rebuild the country and manufacturing comes back and maybe we, you know, we can get back to first principles, which is uh, you need to have reciprocity and fairness in a culture. You know, that 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 the way the Federal Reserve has been operating is a distinctly, deeply unfair thing. And by the way, I don't know that you or I would have been any better in those positions because because it's just humans of which I am a member of the species has been shown all through history. You just can't be trusted with with secretive unlimited power right because it's never a good time to have a crisis on your watch or whatever the story is you know so so sound money is where it's got to be at and um uh you know i i don't really i'm agnostic if bitcoin could serve that purpose i have my doubts i got reasons but i mean if if it was you know sheepskins Mm -hmm. i actually think gold is is got a role in all of this um so that's why i still tend to be pretty pretty excited about gold overall <laughs> you know, i am but... too I, I think it has a role from a long-term standpoint i think it's as we've discussed before great fire insurance against your portfolio mm-hmm. against inflation now you know it seems like we're, we're struggling right now you know we had the highest close that took place on a monthly basis yep i think gold's a little overstretched i wouldn't panic by at this point you know basically what i'm telling investors is you know, I've had conversations with individuals that aren't quite prepared, right? Like they don't have their allocation towards some precious metals or they don't have any in their portfolio and they need to catch up with. You don't, I wouldn't necessarily go panic by today. If we break out of those, this resistance level, yes, you can get a lot more aggressive in adding. But I don't think that the the powers that be are going to allow the, this battle to end that easily. This is a battle at, at, high-end prices and if we get a chance to pull back you can average into those metals uh if it's appropriate talk to a financial advisor not a recommendation to you individually but utilize dollar cost averaging at these levels to to hopefully you know if we do have a 10 percent pullback that allows you to buy a few more ounces a few more um you know a little bit more uh weight of gold or silver to add to your portfolio and I do think at some point, Chris, it's going to be appropriate. You know, it's kind of like I was talking to someone the other day. You know, if I always carry an emergency pack in my car. If, you know, we had a big ice storm that occurred here in North Georgia years ago, and I've always, you know, had my kids carry an emergency pack, and it was, you know, perfect because uh, my daughter had to utilize hers for a short period of time during that, that um, situation. You hope you never use it. But I also think that, you know, precious metals and on a smaller scale that selective foreign currencies to have as a part of your emergency pack, say financially that you set aside are appropriate because uh, because of the power shift that occurs. And if we do end up in a currency crisis, which I do believe at some point we are, I don't know when that's going to be, but I do believe that that we are at some point. Well, it was fascinating because one of the things that also got discussed uh, at the coffee table this morning because I hadn't had a chance to relay it to Evie yet was your experience in Mexico finding out that the people on the ships and boats where you were going fishing and the first mates and the hands and the everybody, they they wanted pesos, not dollars. That that actually, that's the kind of anecdote that, I, that makes me really sit up and take notice. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was fascinating because we're... It, w- w- they told us that the guides told us that coming in. So I thought, well, maybe they get charged an extra premium where they're located for exchanging currency. Well, there were, there were currency exchange places everywhere. So that's not an issue. And the premiums weren't any worse than what uh, the U S banks are. So that, 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 that question was removed, but we're on these, I can't remember what the little boats are, but we go out and the bait guys come up, you know, they're catching live bait 
and they give us the number. I can't remember what pesos were, but but it was you know essentially going to be around fifty U.S. dollars. So I pulled out a fifty dollar bill, thinking we'd get a little bit of a discount, you know. And they look at me and shake their head, and they, you know it's going to be a twenty percent premium to give them U.S. dollars. And I was like, so Kel, my son, was with me. I said, pesos, son, give them pesos. We need to save everything we can. And and mm -hmm. restaurants, you know, they converted credit card payments into pesos. They wanted to be paid in pesos. That that was shocking to me, and I'm still processing that too because that that's not that's not the way it's been historically. Yeah, that's that's one of those. You're driving down the highway. That's one of those lit signs on the side. You drive past, <laughs> like, wait, what? What did that say? <laughs> right, right. So just a way of diversifying. You know, you can take. A, yeah. a couple of strategic, and I'm not going to give a specific recommendation to the public out here because currencies can be very dangerous, but, uh, you know, selectively diversify a few currencies in there and small portions, you know, in addition to your precious metals and you set them on the shelf and you hopefully, you know, hope that 10 years from now, we don't, you know, they're the exact same price that they are today and that all these problems have been solved. But if we do get that, that major uh, impact if the great taking is more than just laziness that that's something that that is planned to take advantage of well you've got a few extra protections inside of there that are outside the system and small amounts can make a big impact on on your financial situation if something happens you don't have to bet everything you have on it yeah yeah so uh so you're waiting for the first of the year i know we haven't really discussed it but but there's a a big line of thinking out there that says that the U.S. government's really been funding itself, financing itself on the short end of the curve. And to do that, they've been tapping into this giant pool of money that the Fed printed up, handed mm. to the banks. The banks put it back with the Fed. Um, and that's called uh, reverse uh, repurchase agreements. But there's mm. this big line, big pile of money that everybody's starting to notice is dwindling. And you can actually, yes. at current rates, it kind of runs out around March of 24. So then what does the U.S. government do? We're going to all hope, I guess, at that level that that rates have come way back down all on their own, um, magically solving everything, which is why I'm a little suspicious that rates are coming down um, because mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's what they want, you know. Uh, and, and so um, the the extent to which we have to live in this, I call it a simulacra market. It's the Truman Show, right? You know, it, it's like it's not a real market, but hey, that's the the, the game we live in. Um, at at current, but I think people do need to be kind of ready for the idea that these fictitious stories that you live into, they're good until they're not, right? Mm -hmm. And when they're not, then you have to sort of say, well, where would I want to be? My solution, I know your solution is kind of similar, has been to sort of analyze it all and go, well, I'm pretty comfortable having a few pigs and some chickens and, you know, maybe a place <laughs> to throw some seeds in the ground, right? That That is a solution, but but I think things could get that it could get that bad. And plus, as I mentioned earlier, I'm really tired of eating bad food from I, I like eating my own food more and more for all sorts of reasons. Oh, I do as well. And my, my wife and I were talking. We went to one of our favorite seafood restaurants last Friday. And of course, the prices are up 35, 40 percent above. Service is not as good as what it used to be. And they overcook. Mm -hmm. Now, we've been going there for 10 years. And we made the comment, well, you know, on the way home, it's like, it's really not worth to go for that experience. I'd rather cook at home because then, I mean, yes, it is a, a sustainable, organic um, um, food restaurant, but we can cook it on our own. It's not quite worth the price and the lack of service that we're getting uh, to go out there. So, um, uh, yeah. Um, I lost my train of thought there. I, I went down a rabbit hole and then and then wondered why I started going down that way. But you said something that spurred me. Well, so we're this... talking about, you know, creating your own food as much as possible. Yes. Right. Creating your own food. Yes. And, um, and... and so that's one thing I enjoy. It gives me comfort. It gets me outside. It keeps me in the dirt. You know, you're grounded to the earth. You've got plenty of vitamin D. And I think that's something that people appreciate a lot more now. And, yeah. and it puts us in a position to be protected in the event that that something does uh, happen and we have major disruptions, which something has to break. We just don't know how severe the disruptions are going to be on the other side. Indeed. Well, folks, if you've been wondering, could you ever possibly find a financial advisor who would be able to talk to you about the things Paul was just talking about? The answer is yes, you can. 
Uh, there are people out there who do get it. And, and you, you know what, everybody, we all deserve to have some people uh, on our side who speak our own language and, and can talk about the things that are really happening. So, um, Paul, that's why we've just been thrilled to find you and, and um, help direct people your way, because it, it's just, it's, we have to consider all the options and we have to talk about this stuff without limit. We can't, Oh, that's unthinkable. Let's not talk about gold. Oh, that's unthinkable. Let's not talk about gardens. You know, we have to consider everything now. Everything's on the table. And so yes. um, thanks. Thanks for doing what you do and helping people think through these really perilous times. It's my honor. John Alexander enjoys it. Dylan Smith enjoys it. Our entire team uh, enjoys it. And we look forward to it. And, you know, and the fun part is, is, what I want to talk to a lot of the viewers out there that haven't spoken to us yet, it's not like we're we're having a conversation with you and immediately allocating you these areas. A lot of things that we're talking about, we're developing plans for, and we have decision points and markers. Yes, there are certain decisions that that you might have to make now, but it's it's mapping out, being prepared, and and you know if there's smoke in the room, which is what we look for, we want to be as close to the exit as possible so that we're two steps ahead of the average individual. And that's what all the planning and process goes into. So it's our honor, Chris. We, we've thoroughly enjoyed, uh, John Alexander and I were talking yesterday just how much we enjoyed meeting uh, uh, the people that you that we have met through you, that you've sent our way, just your, your tribe are, are incredible people. Indeed they are. So thank you so much for doing what you do. Thanks for your time today. Um, we'll see you next week, I think. That sounds good. I look forward to it, Chris. All right. Until then, everybody, enjoy. Hope you enjoyed this, and we'll be back with you next week with Paul. Hello, Chris Martinson. I'm the CEO of Peak Prosperity and also Peak Financial Investing. And after watching that, you're probably wondering, well, what do I do with my money? Look, you both deserve and need somebody who can talk to you about what's really going on in this world, understand the situation as it is, not be steering you towards certain things that don't make sense for you or just keep you in a game that's already ended. Look, if you want to talk to somebody about the petrodollar declining or what is happening with gold or which sectors are actually the best ones to be in, given what the Federal Reserve is up to or the federal government, you deserve to talk to somebody who can answer those and has a few gray hairs and has been there through some of the economic cycles because, hey, we're in another economic cycle, so it's good to have that experience. Fortunately, at Peak Financial Investing, what we do is we go out and we scour and we look for the very best firms out there who satisfy one thing above all else. They've got great experience coupled to great customer service. So if you want to come by peakfinancialinvesting.com, there's a very simple form you can fill out. Just a few fields. You hit send. What happens is an email gets triggered out. It goes to uh, an endorsed firm of ours. You will get an email back. You can then set up a phone call for a 30 to 45 minute free, no obligation, no pressure call to find out if this firm is a good fit for you and to find out if you're a good fit for the firm. It has to go both ways. And if all that matches up, this will be one of the best things that could happen to you this year. So please come by peakfinancialinvesting.com. Very simple process. We would love to help you if we can. Thanks very much.